Good morning, church family, and a happy new year to you. I must admit, I'm feeling a little bit old uh, this this New Year's Eve because uh, I now have a five-month-old, and I have no desire to stay up till midnight to see the new year. Um, so I can relate to many of you here that don't like to do that. And uh, for you young ones, I'm sure you guys go have fun with that. Uh, my name is Joel Lapier. I'm the high school director here at LBC, and it's a pleasure to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, and there's some in front of you in the pew, Uh, Please open to Matthew chapter 17, verses uh, 14 through 21. A few announcements before we get started. Um, If you're new here with us, I want to welcome you. I'm so thankful and excited that you're here with us. Um, We want to connect with you. We would love to connect with you. And one of the ways you can do that is if you take that connection card in the pew in front of you, and if you fill that out, go ahead and put it in the offering box along the back wall, or you can take it to the kiosk in the lobby. That's a great way for us to be able to contact you, pray for you. We'd love to do that. We also have new connection classes starting next Sunday, January 7th, and that's at the 10 a.m. service. Uh, We have the adult classes in the A building right here and the classrooms to the side here, and then uh, junior high, high school, children's, all that starting up again next Sunday. Uh, And then we also have uh, just a highlight out of those connection classes. We have a class, it's a new one we're doing called Starting Points. And I think it's going to happen about once a month at the first Sunday of every month. But it's a a class that's um, really offered to you who are new with us. And uh, just a great way to connect with our pastors and elders and get to know more about our church and how you can belong to LBC and also to serve at our church here. We would love for you to join us there. And that first one starts next Sunday, January 7th. So... Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 17, 14 through 21, and we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago um, with the Mount of Transfiguration. That was the passage that Pastor Eric preached. Our passage this morning takes somewhat of a dark turn from the Transfiguration. And I want you just for a second to appreciate and kind of see how the narrative reads out. It seems like for the past couple of chapters of Matthew, there's been kind of a roller coaster ride with Jesus and the disciples. There's been some setbacks um, with Jesus and his disciples. And this passage that we have today is l- really no different. We went from Peter seeing Christ and proclaiming Christ as the Messiah, the, the Christ, the true Messiah, and Jesus calls him blessed for it. Then we go from there, a few verses later, we see that Peter is now rebuking Jesus for talking about his death, and Jesus calls him Satan. Not not a great start to be called Satan. But then we go from there, we go to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John get this wonderful privilege to witness really Christ's second coming glory. But down the mountain, reality sets back in. Down the mountain, there's a demon-possessed boy and these nine other disciples failing to exercise faith in healing the boy of the demon. We see this wonderful mountaintop experience bathed in light, coexisting with the dark, shadowy valleys. You know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of high school ministry. Not that high school schoolers are demons at all, but uh, it reminds me a little bit of summer camp. Every July, we go to Hume Lake with the high schoolers and, and all the other students, and I get this wonderful privilege of seeing high school students experience this mountaintop kind of experience. They, they get to trust in Jesus. I see high schoolers trusting in Jesus for the first time, for they're making a greater commitment of faith to Christ, finding hope and peace in him, experiencing the body of Christ, working together, loving each other well. But then reality comes crashing back into their life. They have to go back down the mountain. They have to go back to Bakersfield, where the heat is, right? In the next couple of months after camp, they have to face some difficulties, 
Some of those are camp crush disappointments. Uh, some of those things are going back to school. What a drag. Go, um, some of it is doing their homework. They have tons of homework. You know, these things aren't great difficulties, as we all probably know. A high schooler might say that. But high schoolers really do go through some difficult challenges. They often go back home to broken homes and difficult relationships. They go back to peer pressures and sinful temptations. They go back to health problems and real sorrows and real anxieties. You see, faith is easier up the mountain where Christ is obvious. Faith isn't really challenged at Hume. It's encouraged, and rightly it should be. Because back down the mountain, that's where the real challenge comes. Back down the mountain is where we're required to exercise the kind of faith that has a resilience and a strength to it. It is down the mountain where I often see students falter. I see them, their faith being revealed to be small and not great, and where they need constant shepherding and encouragement in their life. You see, the same is true in our lives, in the life of every believer. And maybe you remember this, this moment in your life when you first came to Christ and there was maybe some relative peace in your life. You had kind of this mountaintop experience. You got to know Jesus. Things were calm. Things were good. But then challenges of life came crashing into your life and you were challenged with your faith. Maybe those challenges, those difficulties made you question God, or maybe they made you rethink his love for you or uh, uh, question or wonder what his plan is for you. Maybe that challenge was a health crisis or a relationship or uh, you know, your child or spouse is no longer walking with Jesus. Well, Jesus today, this morning, has a hope-filled lesson for us on having faith. And not just kind, any kind of faith, but having a great faith a great faith that obeys Christ in difficulties and by his grace and power can remove seemingly impossible difficulties. So let's pray as we go to God's word and then we'll read. Father God, I, uh, thank you so much for who you are. God, you are a God who sees all. You see me, you see all of us and love us completely. And you have made that so clear and you have demonstrated that perfectly through the love you displayed on that cross with Christ dying on our behalf while we were still sinners. You sent your one and only son so that we would have grace and the forgiveness of sins and a new relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Now in this time, God, as we look to your word, I pray that you give me the words to preach. God, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And God, that you would build up our faith so that we can honor you well with our voices and with our actions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Something unique in studying this passage is that it is the same story is recorded three times in the Bible. It's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called Synoptic because of their similarities. They're so similar and record very much of the same stories. We see this here in Matthew 17, in Mark 9, 14 through 29, and in Luke 9, 37 through 43. And with Mark being the longest passage on this, this story, and probably the most famous one that you would all probably recognize, I recognized it immediately. It's the one where it has the father's plea who says, I believe, talking to Jesus, help my unbelief, Lord. I have prayed that prayer many times in my life, and I encourage you to do the same. But that's not the, the point of this The synoptic gospels here allow us to actually see some of Matthew's intent, see his focus. Matthew focuses um, 
on not really the spending much time on the details of the miracle or spending details on the crowd or the father's plea or the son's condition. He doesn't spend time on the miracle like Mark and Luke do, but rather he spends time looking at the disciples' failure, their question to Jesus and Jesus' lesson on faith. So after the father's plea, I'm pointing out that his disciples could not heal his son. Jesus gives a great lament. He expresses his frustration. Let's read that, verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And then Jesus heals. This faithless and twisted generation, this, this, this label here is not just any generalized statement. It's a, it's a statement that has full, it's full of meaning. As Jesus sees the crowd, which actually there's many more people than just the disciples there. Mark tells us a little bit more that there was actually scribes who were Jewish legal um, authority. They were there to question his disciples. He calls them, the father, the son, the disciples, all of them, this generation, a faithless and twisted generation. Because of the father's unbelief, the disciples' failure to heal, not exercising their faith, he calls them all faithless and twisted. And in some of your versions of your Bible, you might see you're saying perversion or perverse. I actually prefer that translation. I think it actually fits and communicates more clearly what that generation was and what our generation is. Perversion is a twisting of the truth. It's a changing of God's design. And ultimately, it is disobedience to God. And Jesus uses both labels, faithless and twisted or perverse, um, to describe this generation because without faith in God, there can be no obedience. It takes a trust in God and his design and his wisdom and his ways to obey, especially when it is hard, especially when there's pressures all around. You see, faith is trusting God. Faith is a strong belief, a confidence in God that he will provide. And after Jesus' lament and after he heals the boy, the disciples are really embarrassed. And in privacy, they ask Jesus um, why they couldn't heal the boy. Verse 19, we see, it says, why could we not cast it out? And in verse 20, he said to them, because of your little faith. And here's Jesus' answer, because of your little faith. Jesus' answer here is that, they did not have a complete lack of faith, but it was the littleness of their faith and why they couldn't heal. They hadn't exercised the kind of faith that was effective to heal. And it is not that they had no faith at all. They had a saving faith in Christ, which no one could take away. They even in some sense had a trusting faith in Jesus, enough faith to on his authority attempt to heal this boy. But nonetheless, their attempt was ineffective. Their faith was ineffective. And a clue to why it was ineffective is in verse 21, which says, but this kind, referring to the demon, never comes out except by prayer and fasting. You see, prayer demonstrates a dependence on God for power because he is the source of power to heal. And I'll come back to this point a little later. Jesus' answer here, their littleness of their faith, is not a new critique to the disciples. Um, their trust in God was weak and this wasn't anything new to them. In fact, one commentator I read actually called the disciples the LFA, 
the little faith association for how many times Jesus in the book of Matthew kept calling them, oh, you of little faith, oh, you of little faith. In fact, in the book of Matthew already four times has he told them, oh, you of little faith. I wanna just very quickly look at these four occurrences. You can write them down. I'm not gonna go to the passage specific, but starting in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And, And certainly he is addressing this to the crowds, but also to the disciples as well. And what does he say to them in his message? He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Then later he adds, oh, you of little faith. You see, little faith is expressed in anxiety over simple everyday needs and not trusting in God for that provision. And now we see secondly, Matthew 8, 23 through 27, as Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes in and threatens their life and Jesus is sleeping and they wake him up. They cry out to Jesus and how does he respond to them? He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Little faith is expressed in fear. Little faith is expressed in fear and particularly fear over death, which as we all can understand that, but it is nonetheless the Bible labels little faith. We all can understand having fear of death. That is a common struggle of all human but it is little faith. We continue on Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Again, disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Only this time, Jesus comes to them walking on water. And Peter cries out and asks to walk on water. He walks with Jesus and he keeps his eyes focused on Christ. And then he shifts his eyes from Christ to the storm. And what does Jesus say to him as he rescues him? He says, oh, Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt Little faith is expressed in doubting Christ. The last example, Matthew 16, 5 through 12. Jesus teaches the disciples about the 11 of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples become kind of confused about this teaching. And Jesus responds, Oh, you of little faith, do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Do you not remember? Referring to his previous miraculous provision for the 5,000 from the four loaves. You see, little faith is exercised and by misunderstanding and misremembering God's provisions. So what does the example of the disciples ultimately teach us here? I think little faith here is trusting God when things are well, when things make sense to you. But as soon as the status quo is threatened, as soon as you are challenged, we begin to worry, to doubt, to fear, and ultimately to not see God's loving provision for you in the midst of the storm. You know, I know we can relate to this. I can certainly relate to this. Um, my faith last year was greatly challenged. Uh, last year, August 2022, my wife and I, um, we lost our first child to a miscarriage. And I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't, in my own opinion, haven't experienced a lot of challenges in life, um, but this one certainly rocked my world and my foundation felt quite shaky. The difficulty of this and the disappointment of this miscarriage challenged my faith greatly. And I kept wondering to myself, would I, would, am I going to still choose Christ? For a good month after the miscarriage, I was distraught and angry at God and bitter towards God. You know, being in ministry, I thought he really owed me something there. I thought I had earned this child. When we found out that news, I didn't want to keep trusting in Christ I wanted to neglect every responsibility that I had and just isolate myself because I was bitter. And I doubted God's plan for me. And I feared 
the worse. You see, in this moment, my faith was challenged and found to be very little. And sometimes that's good to be challenged and revealed. You see, little faith fails to obey God when challenged because we choose in those moments to not depend on God, but on ourselves. And sometimes our trust and our confidence in God is really a trust and confidence in the things God does for us. We are all good as long as Jesus treats us according to our definition of good. And that's little faith. And if you can relate to that definition of little faith, then I want you to pay attention to Jesus' lesson on the mustard seed faith and moving mountains. Let's read verse 20 and we'll move on. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, here's the lesson. If you have faith like a a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. When we read Jesus' lesson here, you know, it almost seems contradicting to his critique of the disciples. He just told the disciples, um, the reason why you couldn't heal the boys because you had little faith. And now it sounds like he's saying, if you had only, if you only had faith, like a little mustard seed, then you would have been able to heal. Well, the point of the mustard seed is not that it's small. The point of it is not that it's little. The point is that it is small, but it grows very large. It grows into a great tree. And this is a point that Jesus has already made to the disciples. And so that's why I believe he's not elaborating anymore because in Matthew 13, he's already given the parable of the mustard seed and the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 13, verse 32, he says this about the seed. He says, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. You see, faith, like a mustard seed, always starts out small, but the point is that it must grow very large. For faith to be effective, for it to be able to move mountains, which is the Bible's way of saying difficulties, your faith must become great. And it's important here to say that this is not a message of you just need to have a little more faith. You know, that kind of teaching, um, to be honest, comes from a lot of televangelists and it's very manipulative. And they frame that discussion around you and your abilities and your giftings and your faith. And they promise that if you just have more faith and you just give more money, then you will be healed. And those teachers are charlatans and wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, that's not the lesson of this passage. That's not Jesus' lesson on faith. The, the lesson is that faith here is that faith starts small, but it grows and it must grow if it's going to be effective. But how does faith grow? We must ask that. How does faith grow? Before I even answer that, first, where does faith come from? Where does it come from? Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. In Philippians 1, 26, Paul says to the Philippians, to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe, which is to have faith in him. It's been granted to you. And Romans 12, 3 says that God has given each Christian a measure of faith. So where does it come from? Our faith comes from God. These passages clearly indicate that. So if it comes from God, then how does it grow? Well, God's still involved in our faith. Faith grows as God brings trials in our life to build our faith. James 1, 2-3 would really clarify this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
You see, faith, when tested, builds steadfastness or endurance. Or in other words, it builds a greater faith, a stronger faith that can endure and obey in the midst of difficulties and challenges of life. So how else can faith grow? Well, one clear, one very clear um, thing about this is that the, they, the, the disciples failed to heal because they did not exercise faith by depending on God in prayer. You see by, by now this, this story that we're seeing here, the disciples had already been given the command, they've been given the gifting, the authority to cast out demons. We see that in Matthew 10, 8. Their lack of prayer here indicates their shift in dependence. They didn't think about depending on the Lord in prayer. They thought about their confidence in themselves and their own giftings and abilities and their own authority. So our faith can grow more when we guard ourselves against the pride in our own abilities and and our own reasoning and make God more of the object of our confidence and not ourselves. Think of all the scriptures that speak of this. I'll, I'll give you one just for example, Proverbs 3, five through six, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That is a warning to guard against one, one's own pride in their own ability and reasoning. You know, I wish I would have learned that lesson before I got to high school, but unfortunately, as many young men do, we have to learn it the hard way, right? Uh, I was proud about a lot of things in high school, which I should never have been, but you know, I was. And one of the things I was really proud about was my newly acquired driving skills. And you could talk to my parents about this, that I thought I was a race car driver. Um, by the time I had graduated high school, I had three major accidents or involved in three major accidents, two fender benders and one totaled car. I don't want to know what my insurance was, but you can ask my parents. Um, it's probably very high. I can say this, that three of those accidents were not my fault at all. So not even the total car, but still that experience, that challenge, that difficulty was very humbling. Let's just say that my pride was um, destroyed or maybe a better way to say it is corrected. <laughs> I, I had a false sense of security, let's say that. And this is a good lesson for all you high schoolers here with new licenses. The pride in one's own abilities was a false sense of security, a false view of self. Trials, you see, as James indicates, can self-correct. Trials can correct us. Knowing God more and who he is corrects our faulty thinking of our own ability and really God's ability. So when we place our confidence in ourselves instead of faith in God. We have this false sense of security. We trust in ourselves to remove difficulties and instead of looking to God, who's the only one able to move those mountains, the only one able to remove difficulties like a mountain. So God has empowered us to do that through faith in him. He has given us faith And he's given us many other things too that are related to faith. He's given us a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. He's given us the ability to pray to him. He's given us the ability to know him through scripture and very importantly, to participate in the body of Christ and have that encouragement from the body. Okay, now let's look at verse 21, which says this, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. This verse may not be in your Bibles. I don't know if you noticed that. It wasn't in mine. 
In fact, it took me two hours of studying this passage before I realized that I was reading verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, and then I just skipped over and there was just verse 22. Uh, There's no 21. I was, I was a little shocked, so I had to look into it. This passage is missing in the ESV, so that's the translation we use the most here. Um, sometimes, maybe in your Bible, depending on what translation it is, it's in brackets. In a lot of ESV, it should be in your footnotes of your Bible. Um, but the reason why it's, it's not included in there or it's in brackets is because it was not in the earliest manuscripts of the book of Matthew. In fact, a scribe later added that in um, because, and here's a really important thing, these are still Jesus' words. I do believe they're Jesus' words because Mark 9, 29 says it. The only words in this last verse of 21 that I won't include and even talk about is and fasting. A scribe later added that in thinking it fit Jesus' message. But Mark 9.29 does not mention that. So Jesus here indicates that the demon would not come out because either it was particularly strong or stubborn. Who knows? The disciples could not cast out or scare out this, disciple, uh, this, this demon simply by chanting, you know, in Jesus' name a hundred times. It wasn't working. That's how I imagined them just sitting there a hundred times in Jesus' name. It wasn't working. And so we don't know the demon's reaction to this, but you have to imagine the demon was quite amused by all that. This verse shows us that the disciples had little faith and that they did not exercise their faith through dependence on God in prayer. They didn't pray to God for divine intervention and therefore had no power to heal. Only God can heal. Only God is the source and power of healing. And it's important to note this. I actually want to back up to verse 20. These last, the last words in verse 20 are important. It says this, nothing will be impossible for you or to you. You see that, that phrase, nothing will be impossible to you is conditional. And it's only valid because nothing is impossible to God. This verse isn't really about us. It's about God. Nothing is impossible to God. Therefore, if you pray to him, nothing is impossible for him. But you see, when someone is healed, it is because God willed them to be healed. No amount of prayer or faith can arm wrestle God into submission and change his mind on that fact. And so it's important that we note that. Okay, so what are we to take from Jesus' message here then? This message uh, that the demon was driven out by prayer. Well, last time I checked, I haven't met anyone or know anyone with a specific ministry or calling to cast out demons. Um, that, that we see that later on with the apostles. The apostles and the early disciples did actually have the command to cast out demons. And in fact, they, they failed here, but they did actually succeed later. In Luke 10, 17, when the 72 disciples were reporting to Jesus, um, when they came back, um, they reported that they were able to cast out demons and the, even the demons feared them. And so it was part of the early church in demonstrating the power of the gospel over the kingdom of darkness. So what are we to learn from this story? What are we to learn from Jesus' lesson? Well, I appreciate the words of Charles Spurgeon on the verse, and he says this, our business in the world is to deliver men from the power of the devil, and we must go to Jesus to learn the way. Our duty as Christians is to help others go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, as Colossians 1.13 says. Only God saves and only God delivers, but he uses us to bring the message of light and salvation to the lost. 
So our duty as Christians is to proclaim the gospel and to pray for people, to be an ambassador for Christ and to be an intercessor for the lost. The principle here is that we are to never, to never give up praying for people as we minister to them. We in faith supplicate to God on their behalf. We pray and pray and endure and endure because we know that we serve a God who is able. We know that we serve a God who is merciful. We know that we serve a God who gives grace upon grace upon grace. And this is where our hope is because God is a merciful, gracious, loving God. You know, many years ago, um, I've grown up this church all 30 years of my life. And um, when I was in high school, it was kind of a rocky time of LBC in the history of LBC. And I witnessed a lot of students high school students, college students walking away from the Lord. And uh, my siblings were walking away from the Lord. And um, when it came time for me at 18 to make my faith my own, to start going to church on my own, my parents weren't going to make me do it any longer. um, I decided I wasn't going to go. I decided I'm going to choose my own way, walk my own way and walk away from Christ in the church. A year later, about a year later after that, at 19 years old, I just was convicted over my sin. All the things that I was taught, I remembered that that Christ had died for me, that he, if he did rise three days later and he is Lord and sitting on the throne now, then I better respond to that. I better respond. And so I did. I responded and um, I went to my parents after some time and, and just told them about my rebellious double life that I spent in high school. And they looked at me and they were like, we know, we knew, we knew the whole time. And I was just like, what? Like, how would you know? High schoolers aren't that sneaky, apparently. Um, they knew. And I said, well, why didn't you just press harder? Or why didn't you ground me for life? Or why, why didn't you do something about it? And they said, we did. We did do something about it. We knew that if we pushed and pushed and pushed, you would have pushed harder and harder and harder. And so we prayed. We knew that God is able. We prayed and prayed and prayed for you. And by God's grace, I, I believe I am a testament to the power of prayer through my parents and that God is able. God is able. And just a little side note here. I, after all this, I came to Pastor Eric, who was my youth pastor at the time. And I said, I want to be a pastor. And he was shocked. He was absolutely shocked, which says a lot about me. I was a little offended by him being so shocked by it, but um, God is able. God is able to save and to change. But I bring up this point, this last point, really, um, to encourage you. I, you know, I know many of you here personally, and I know many of you have your children who have walked away from the Lord or have a spouse who's not walking with the Lord or has never walked with the Lord, my encouragement to you is to never give up on praying for them. God is able to save. Do not give up. Exercise your faith through prayer. Endure the difficulties and trust in God to provide because he is able. He's the only one able. Continue to proclaim the gospel and to pray for people because God is faithful. So great faith endures when there is no provision. A great faith is a faith that starts small, but grows very large, large enough to take on mountains. It's a a great faith that grows through trials and disavowing oneself of pride and taking on a greater confidence in Christ than we are confident in our own selves. A great faith that moves mountains depends on God through dedicated prayer and dependence through that prayer. There was once a uh, great 
Christian leader in the 19th century England. His name was George Mueller. And he was the founder of many orphanages. Um, he was often um, considered a, a, a man of just great prayer, just a, a man of prayer. And he, at any given time, he was taking care of over 2,000 orphans. And any, uh, in his entire lifetime, he took care of 10,000 orphans. It was said, because he was such a great man of prayer, that he uh, also kept a prayer journal. And uh, in this prayer journal they have is recorded many prayer requests um, of his loved ones and of the orphans. And Mueller in his journal had over 50,000 answers to his prayers recorded in his journal. 30,000 of them, he said himself, were answered within the same day or within the same hour they were prayed. You know, if we were to have any New Year's resolution this year, I would encourage you to pray more. I know that's the resolution I have now from reading this passage. We're called to pray. We're commanded to pray. Mueller once wrote this note about five people he prayed for. He said this, in November, 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health or on the land or on the sea. And whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. Mueller died after 50 years of praying for these individuals. The two, he never knew the answer, never knew if they came to Christ, but they bent the knee of need to Christ a few years after he passed. Mueller is an example to all of us that God moves mountains and calls us to exercise that faith in him through dedicated prayer. And so my encouragement to you is, will you pray more in 2024? Will you pray for the loss? Will you exercise a greater faith and demonstrate that through prayer? I know I need to do that. I am not a great man of prayer, but I need to be. Will you strive like Mueller did to be dedicated servant to his church, to his people and pray for others and for God's glory because he is the king. Let's pray. Father God, you know we live in a dark world full of spiritual battles and many challenges to our faith, but you know all these things well and you have given us all that we need in you to face the battles. You give us the gift of faith and prayer to help us exercise a greater dependence on you, God. Help us to do that. Help us to endure well, to have a steadfast faith in you that has resilient, that has strength that only you can supply. Help us, God, to strive after you, be dedicated, and give us the strength to follow you and pursue others with the gospel and prayer. We pray in the precious name of Jesus, amen.